The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is June 22, 2022, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center uh, and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to our final lecture of the 2022 Spring Season in Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. This season's theme was Great Power Competition. Normally, we welcome listeners from all over the world to tonight's live stream lecture event, uh, but as I mentioned before, we will have this lecture on YouTube, uh, so please check out our YouTube channel uh, for this event. Uh, tonight, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Matthew Kranig. Dr. Kranig is a professor in the Department of Government and the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Dr. Kranig is also the Director of Global Strategy Initiative and the Deputy Director of the Snowcraft Center of, uh, for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He has previously worked as the Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and as a Research Fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Security at Harvard University and the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Dr. Matthew Kranig. Very much. Great. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Carl. It's really a pleasure to be here at the Army War College. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, and it is really good to be back. My first time here was in 2005. Uh, I was a PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley. And one of the professors here, Dr. Stephen Biddle, had a competition uh, for the best uh, PhD dissertation proposals in international security in the country. Uh, and uh, two um, lucky PhD students would be invited here, and Dr. Biddle and some of the other professors were going to chew over the proposal and, and help to make it better. Uh, and I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, be selected. Uh, the other student was uh, Jacob Shapiro, who's now a tenured full professor at Princeton University. And I, I really uh, think that, that Part of at least my success and, and being a professor at Georgetown now was due to that uh, workshop with um, Dr. Biddle here at the War College. So, uh, oh, some of my success to the War College and I'm happy to be back. Um, so we're here tonight to talk about uh, great power competition. Uh, as you uh, may all know, the uh, Trump administration several years ago said the return of great power competition with Russia and China uh, is the foremost national security challenge facing the country. Uh, the Biden administration essentially agrees with that and has said that uh, strategic competition with China is the only uh, state-based threat that has the ability to overturn uh, the US-led order. Uh, and, and President Biden has said we're at a global inflection point in a battle between democracy and autocracy. Uh, United States and its democratic allies on one side and, and Russia, China, and revisionist autocracies on the other side. Uh, and he's asked, um, can democracies show that they can still deliver? And so it was this set of questions that really motivated me to write this book. Um, uh, do the United States and its democratic allies uh, have what it takes to succeed in these competitions? Uh, or uh, do Russia and China with their autocratic systems have an advantage? And I think there is a conventional wisdom in some circles that maybe, uh, maybe Russia and China have the advantage. Uh, they have strong central leaders who can um, make long-term plans and stick to them. Uh, meanwhile, in democracies, we're polarized, we're, we're gridlocked, we can't see past the next election cycle. Uh, these dictators can uh, make big, bold decisions. And again, we're, we're gridlocked. Uh, they can take the gloves off and get tough in international politics, and we're constrained by norms and laws. Um, but, but I was skeptical of this. I thought that actually the United States has enduring strengths. Russia and China have some real weaknesses. Uh, and so that's why I was motivated uh, to write this uh, book. And I do uh, conclude, uh, as you'll see, that democracies do have um, enduring advantages and tend to pre prevail in these long-run strategic competitions. Um, 
so, um, you know, the questions I'm answering essentially are, will the United States and, and its allies maintain their international leadership position, or will they be uh, overtaken by China or Russia? Uh, and this raises a more fundamental question as an international relations scholar, which I am, which is, wh what do we know about why countries uh, accumulate power, become great powers, become the most dominant state in the international system? Uh, and what do we know about why sometimes they're overtaken by revisionist challengers? And just to preview the argument, I, I essentially uh, conclude um, studying uh, history over the past 2,500 years uh, that democracies uh, tend to do pretty well in these competitions. Um, autocracies can do well for a while, but they often run out of steam. And, and if this is the case, that actually the United States and its democratic allies are well positioned to maintain their uh, international leadership position for the foreseeable future. Um, so great power rivalry, as, as I write about in this uh, book, has existed for all of human history. You can go back to the Greeks and the Persians 2,500 years ago. Um, but after the end of the Cold War, we had this remarkable period where uh, it seemed, at least in the West, that great power competition had come to an end. Uh, and, and it's hard to imagine now, but if you look back at the Obama administration's national security strategy in 2010, uh, Russia and China are mentioned many times. Um, but never once as a possible threat. Uh, they're mentioned as possible partners for cooperation, but, but not as uh, a threat. Uh, well, the world's changed uh, quite a bit in the past 12 years, unfortunately. Russia and China have become much more assertive. Uh, of course, we're seeing that uh, most viscerally now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but of course, it didn't start uh, in February of this year. Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, uh, invaded Ukraine for the first time in 2014. Um, intervened militarily in Syria in 2015, establishing itself as a Middle Eastern power broker for the first time since the 1970s, um, interfering in our elections, the elections of our uh, allies, trying to weaken and, and divide the West. Uh, and so Russia is trying to, to disrupt this U.S.-led system, but the challenge from China may be even greater. Uh, China uh, has the second largest economy on Earth, uh, many economists predict that it could overtake the United States as the world's leading economy within the decade. And, and China's investing that economic power into military power, shifting the balance of power in Asia. And many uh, U.S. defense planners wonder, does the United States uh, still have the ability to defend longstanding allies and partners uh, in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, so this is a serious set of challenges. I, I think Washington was slow to, to wake up to these challenges. Uh, there was really this hope after the end of the Cold War that by engaging with Russia and China, they could become responsible stakeholders in a rules-based international system. Um, but, but finally, after many years, I think Washington realized our, our strategy wasn't working. Uh, engaging with Russia and China was leading them to be more aggressive, uh, more confrontational, and so a new approach was needed. Um, and so, as I mentioned, uh, 2018 National Defense Strategy uh, was really a re remarkable document. Often these national security documents are, are kind of laundry lists of everything that's important. Uh, this one was remarkable because it explicitly said that terrorism and counterinsurgency is no longer the priority uh, and that competition with Russia and China is the priority. Uh, and again, this has been continued in the Biden administration. Biden and Trump agree, uh, disagree on, on many things, of course. But I think on this central issue, uh, that long-term competition with China and Russia is the biggest challenge facing the country, they, they agree. Um, so uh, what do we know about this question? Do democracies have advantages in long-run competitions? Do autocracies have advantages? Do we have the better system? Do they have the better system? Uh, so this is kind of a standard slide that uh, scholars often put in talking about the existing literature. But essentially the point here is uh, this is something that scholars have debated really since the beginning of recorded human history. The ancient Greeks uh, debated this question. But there ha actually hasn't been much rigorous recent research uh, addressing this. And so that's the question I wanted to address, building on uh, modern social science, uh, building on recent evidence. What do we know about the fitness of democracies and autocracies in great power competition? Um, so there hasn't been much rec recent research on this, but there has been uh, research in the past. And um, many scholars who have looked at this 
uh, have concluded that um, actually democracies um, have the advantage. Uh, so uh, Polybius, an ancient Roman historian, uh, Montesquieu, a, a French philosopher, uh, and Machiavelli. You may know Machiavelli as the author of The Prince, uh, and uh, so you might be surprised to see him on this list. Um, but I think Machiavelli's more important work uh, was the Discourses on Livy, uh, where he essentially looked at the rise of Rome and said, how did Rome come to, you know, from being a small city-state in Italy, how did it come to dominate the entire Mediterranean basin? And Machiavelli's argument in this book is that it was Rome's republican institutions uh, that allowed it to expand and, and dominate. Uh, and um, so I'm building on um, uh, Machiavelli and others uh, in, in making a similar argument that I do think that a more open, democratic, republican uh, systems do outcompete um, dictatorships. You know, just as a side note, one of the uh, hardship posts I have at uh, Georgetown, um, every May I go to Florence, Italy and teach a two-week course on Machiavelli. Uh, so I just got back. So my suit's fitting a little bit tighter because of all the, the pasta and pizza, but it was uh, it, always enjoyable going there and um, uh, teaching Machiavelli, including the Machiavelli that uh, people don't know that he was, was a big defender of uh, democratic uh, systems of government. Um, so I essentially try to update Machiavelli's uh, argument for the modern era and say, what does it take for a country to uh, be powerful and influential in the international system and start from the basic um, insight that, well, to be powerful uh, in the international system, you have to have a, a strong economy. Um, if you have a strong economy, you can um, promise trade and investment to your friends. You can threaten sanctions uh, against your enemies. Uh, you have the economic capacity to engage and uh, provide aid, to build your military. Um, I say being strong diplomatically also helps. You know, most things, including international politics, is easier if you have friends and, and allies, uh, much harder if the rest of the world is, is working against you. Uh, and then finally, having a strong military is an important source of power. You can protect yourself, protect your friends, uh, and um, uh, defend yourself against your uh, enemies. Um, so what does it uh, take to have a strong economy, to be strong diplomatically, uh, to be strong militarily, and, and do autocracies or democracies tend to have those traits? Uh, so I am standing on the uh, back of, uh, on the shoulders of giants and doing this research, and one of the other courses I teach at Georgetown uh, is an advanced international relations uh, theory seminar where we review the recent uh, scholarship in political science, international relations, economics. And, and there really has been an obsession among social scientists in the past several decades of looking at whether democracies or autocracies are different. Uh, and you may be familiar with the well-known democratic peace theory, saying are, are democracies you know, uh, more peaceful than autocracies? Uh, but there's a lot of other research along these lines, and so I've uh, look, looked into this research. Um, so a lot of research looking at whether democracies and autocracies are different when it comes to economics, and essentially the conclusion is that democracies uh, tend to have stronger economies. Uh, they have a rule of law system that makes it safe for uh, investors. Uh, they tend to uh, incentivize um, thinking outside the box, entrepreneurship, radical innovation that leads to technological breakthroughs. Um, they tend to uh, be the center of international financial markets. Uh, I don't know if you have um, 401ks, or, uh, but, but I'm guessing you maybe have money in the S&P 500 and U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, you probably don't have money, a lot of money in Beijing or Moscow. Uh, and and the, the elites in Beijing and Moscow don't want their money there either. They're, as we're seeing now, they're buying yachts and, and properties in London and in the United States uh, because they trust rule of law systems for uh, storing their wealth. Um, so for uh, all these reasons and others, um, uh, democracies tend to have stronger economies than, than autocracies. Uh, what about um, diplomacy? Uh, and um, uh, same thing, there's a lot of political science research that suggests that democracies are better allies. Uh, they, they tend to uh, form alliances. Uh, they're more likely to actually come to their allies' aid when they're in trouble. Uh, democratic alliances last longer. Um, and um, um, uh, moreover, uh, political scientists show that this isn't just the case with alliances, that democracies are more likely to join international agreements of all types uh, and more likely to actually comply with those agreements. 
uh, that when dictators sign agreements, they often cheat on them. Uh, democracies don't. Um, so, so just a few examples. Um, you know, let, let's look at Russia's history as an ally. Um, during World War II, Russia signed an alliance with Nazi Germany. Uh, then they went to war with each other. Um, uh, Russia set up, uh, during the Cold War, the Warsaw Pact. Uh, the major military action that the Warsaw Pact saw was uh, fighting amongst themselves, Russia invading Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Uh, then Russia signed an alliance with China, uh, and they fought a war with each other that almost went nuclear, the 1969 uh, Sino-Soviet border uh, war. Uh, then after the end of the Cold War, Russia set up the Commonwealth of Independent States. It's now invaded two of its CIS allies, both Ukraine and, and Georgia. Uh, so uh, you sign an alliance with the United States, you can be pretty sure the United States has your back. Uh, sign an alliance with Russia, you better watch your back. Uh, so uh, democracies and autocracies are just very different in their uh, alliance uh, behavior. Uh, the example of commitments more broadly um, I've, I've written seven books. Five of them are on nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons is something I've thought a lot about. And um, if you look at the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, you have democracies who've signed the treaty and, and uh, uh, abided by it. Uh, you've had democracies who've decided, no, I want to build nuclear weapons. I'm not signing up to that, like India and Israel. Um, never has a democracy signed the NPT and then started a secret nuclear weapons program uh, nine times um, autocracies have done this. Iran, Iraq, North Korea, Libya, Syria. Uh, they sign up to the treaty and then they cheat. And that's um, indicative of di uh, dictatorship's behavior uh, more broadly. They're not very reliable alliance partners, uh, not very reliable when they sign up to um, agreements. Uh, and then finally, um, militarily, uh, something that I know is important here at the Army War College. And you know, maybe I, I think the, the average person might think, well, dictatorships have an advantage when it comes to war. Uh, they're bold. They can take bold decisions. They, they're not constrained by law. Um, but if you actually look at the evidence, you find something uh, different. So uh, political scientists Dan Ryder and Alan Stamm um, have looked at every war from 1815 to the present and they find that democracies have won about 75% of the wars that they've fought, uh, whereas dictatorships have won um, less than half of the wars that they fought. And so it's not 50-50 because some wars like World War II, you know, you have multiple democracies on one side, multiple countries on the other side, uh, but the democracies are, are more likely to win the wars they fight. And, and they think this is for a couple of reasons, but the, the big one they put forward is that democracies uh, tend to make better decisions about war and peace. Uh, that uh, bef Not that democracies don't make mistakes, they do, uh, but before a democratic leader decides to go to war, uh, the, the leaders uh, had debates within the cabinet, within uh, the executive branch, has heard criticism from Congress, from, from the media, and so has a pretty good sense of the cost and the benefits of uh, going down this course of action. Um, on the other hand, um, dictators don't have that benefit. They're surrounded by uh, yes men and women who, who tell them what they want to hear. Uh, they don't have an, uh, checks and balances in their government. You know, nobody in, in Putin's Russia stood up to him and said, sir, I think this is a bad idea. Don't invade Ukraine. You know, there weren't people writing op-eds in newspapers saying, sir, don't invade Ukraine. This is a bad idea. Uh, and so they tend to make um, bad decisions that lead to defeat and war, and, and we're seeing that um, currently. Um, maybe the biggest advantage, though, that uh, democracies have in war and peace uh, is simply that we can actually focus our attention on the adversary. Um, because if you look at dictators, what, what is their biggest threat? It's actually their own people. Uh, and uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, just follow the money. Uh, Russia and China spend more on internal security uh, than they do on their militaries. Uh, the United States is two to one in the other direction. Um, so again, if you just follow the money, Putin is more worried about protesters in Moscow. Xi is more worried about uh, Hong Kong and Tibet uh, and Xinjiang uh, than he is of the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, and so that's a pretty big advantage for, for the United States. Um, so you add all this up. If, if democracies have advantages economically, diplomatically, militarily, shouldn't they be doing better uh, overall? And so that's essentially what I argue in this book, that... Um, democracies do have advantages when it comes to accumulating power, to becoming great powers, to becoming the leading state in the international system, uh, and autocracies have, have real weaknesses. 
so often in, in the United States, we debate what is our greatest source of strength. I, I know my friends in the Pentagon often say, well, it's our network of uh, allies and partners. We have that. Russia and China don't. Uh, I talk to friends in Wall Street or Silicon Valley, and they say, well, it's our, our world-beating economy. We're innovative. We're the center of finance. Um, I talk to uh, you know, others who say, well, no, it's that we have a superpower uh, military. Um, but, but essentially what I argue is that we, we're we have those things because of our domestic political institutions. Uh, we have allies. We have an innovative economy. We have a powerful military because of our uh, democratic system. And Russia, China, uh, and others, I think, have real weaknesses because of their autocratic systems. Okay, what about the uh, alternative uh, argument? Because you have had people make the alternative argument over the years. Uh, Plato argued that a philosopher king uh, would be the best form of government. Um, Henry Kissinger, when he was national security advisor, uh, really kind of disdained American democracy. It's getting in the way of my grand strategy. Wouldn't it be nice if... You know, I could just make decisions without the public commenting on it. Uh, and uh, Alexander de Tocqueville, I don't know if you know de Tocqueville, he wrote a, a very good book called Democracy in America uh, that's been uh, called um, uh, by some the best book on America and the best book on democracy. So he was a big fan of American democracy, but he actually said, you know, I, I don't think these Americans are going to be able to do foreign policy. Uh, you know, dictatorships just do foreign policy better, American democracy. Um, it, uh, they're just not going to be able to, to figure out foreign, foreign policy. Uh, so what are the arguments they make? And, and you hear this argument uh, today, and, and maybe a little bit less after Putin's failed invasion of Ukraine, uh, but you used to hear it a lot, and you hear it um, often still with China. Uh, so what are the advantages that Putin and Xi supposedly have? Well, you know, they can make bold and rapid decisions. Uh, we're locked in endless debate. Congress can't get anything done. Um, they have a long-run strategic plan. China has a plan for 2049. You know, we barely have a plan for what happens before the midterm elections. Um, you know, we care about norms and international law, and, and, and they can really take the gloves off. And yeah, maybe it's, you know, uh, unsavory when Putin uh, bombs cities or uh, assassinates um, political opponents. But, you know, he's getting things done, and we're uh, scared of our own shadow. Um, and, then, and then finally, that um, autocratic politics are clean and efficient. You know, we have scandals. You know, look at the January 6th thing, uh, hearings playing out on television. Uh, and even if, you know, um, maybe there's stuff going on in backroom torture chambers, at least the image presented to the world is that she and, and Putin are firmly in control and there's domestic uh, stability. Um, so in the book, I argue that um, all of these things, there's either a counterargument or they're wrong um, altogether. Um, so it is true that autocracies can make big, bold mistake, uh, decisions, but they also make big, bold mistakes. Look at Putin in Ukraine. Look at uh, Hitler and Napoleon invading Russia in winter. Um, so democracies um, tend to be slower. That's true. But we also avoid uh, the, the disastrous mistakes. Uh, Long-run strategic planning, this is a conventional wisdom. I think it's wrong. I think actually democracies are better at long-run strategic planning uh, because dictators are unconstrained. They can say, here's my plan for 2049 today and change their mind tomorrow. Uh, and a good example of this is, is Mao Zedong in, in uh, China. You know, his great leap forward was a disaster, cultural revolution, um, uh, you know, trying one failed policy um, after another. And I think we see that now in China. Um, essentially, a lot of China's rise was because of the policies put in place by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, and now um, the new dictator, Xi, is throwing those out, out the window and undermining China's uh, growth and power. Um, you know, not being constrained by laws and norms, that's um, true, but, um, you know, being seen as um, uh, violating international law, not keeping your commitment, also has downsides. And I think we're seeing that now with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Nobody believes anything uh, the Russians um, say anymore. Um, and then finally, autocratic politics are clean and efficient. Uh, you know, yes, we have problems, we have our disputes, but it's on televised, uh, uh, televised for everyone to see. Um, you know, Russia and China have their disputes as well. It's just that they're resolved, again, in, in torture chambers or uh, with assassinations. Okay, fin finally, third possibility. Maybe there's no difference. Uh, maybe both democracies and autocracies uh, can compete in international politics. And there's a school of international relations uh, theory, uh, realism, uh, which essentially argues this, that domestic politics don't matter, domestic political systems don't matter, uh, it's an 
competitive international environment. Um, so countries uh, have to be able to compete. If they can't compete, they'll be wiped out of the system. And given that we have a lot of democracies in the world today, given that we have a lot of autocracies in the world today, both of these systems must be doing just fine. So domestic politics don't matter. Okay, so we have three possibilities. Maybe democracies have the advantage. Maybe autocracies have the advantage. Maybe it doesn't matter. Um, so let's look um, at the evidence. And um, uh, there's a school of international relations theory that essentially says that uh, there's been the rise and fall of great powers over the course of history. And the scholars writing in this vein identify who was the system leader at, at various points of world history. Uh, and so Razzler and Thompson, two of the scholars working in this area, in one of their classic studies published in 1985, said, well, you know, starting in the 1600s, it was the Dutch Republic as the leading uh, state for about 100 years. Uh, Dutch Republic, uh, uh, by the way, first modern uh, or first uh, republic in early modern Europe. Uh, then they say it was the British for uh, 200 years. And then after the end of World War II, it was the United States. And, and their study was published in 85, but some of their students have come along and said, well, the US is still uh, the system leader. Um, so essentially you have, uh, for the past 400 years, uh, democracies as the, the system leader, um, according to this uh, school of thought. Now, of course, the Dutch Republic or the British Empire aren't um, democratic according to our uh, current standards. You know, the Dutch Republic persecuted um, homosexuals, for example. Um, but they were the most uh, liberal, open, democratic countries of their time, and they were also the most powerful. Um, so essentially, a 400-year uh, undefeated record is, is, is not bad. Um, so at least suggestive of the idea that, that democracies do have advantages when it comes to global leadership. Um, political science is becoming a little bit more like economics. There's pressure on us to uh, do quantitative analysis. And so political scientists have developed quantitative measures of international power. Uh, they've also developed quantitative measures of democracy. And, and so I uh, just looked, are there correlations uh, between these things? And uh, as you can see, uh, suggestive evidence that democracies uh, seem to have more power on average than autocracies. Um, so, um, you know, of the countries that have at least 1% of all the power in the world, according to these measures, 28% uh, of democracies um, make, meet the threshold, only 20% of autocracies. Uh, that is a statistically significant difference. Um, what about the countries that are labeled global powers? Uh, again, a, a common standard definition used by political scientists. Um, of the global powers, 16% are democracies, 7% uh, autocracies. Uh, and then which countries have been the leading power since 1815 when political scientists have collected this data? Uh, and uh, almost always a democracy, basically the British and the Americans, uh, with the Soviet Union and China popping up uh, for uh, several years. Um, and I guess the other thing, you know, taking a, a step back that's uh, remarkable to me doing this study, uh, you know, before 1945, democracy was a pretty rare form of government. You had a handful in the ancient world, a, a handful during the Italian Renaissance. Um, even before World War II, there were only a handful of democracies in, in Western Europe. Um, yet they, they keep coming out on, on top. Um, you know, Athens, the Roman Republic, the Venetian Republic, the Dutch Republic, the British Empire, the United States. Think about the great powers in the world today, the United States, Britain, France, Japan. Um, you know, democracies uh, really punch above their weight, tend to be among the, the leading powers, uh, disproportionate to their representation in, in the international system. Um, so I, in addition to the statistical studies, I do some historical uh, studies and, and look at seven examples of rivalries between more democratic uh, great powers and their autocratic rivals uh, starting 2,500 years ago. So I look at the uh, Greeks against the Persians, uh, look at the rise of the Roman Republic against its various um, autocratic rivals, um, look at the Venetian Republic against its rivals, the Dutch Republic, the British, and, and the United States. Uh, and um, can't go through all the details in, in the lecture, of course. If you're interested, check out the book. Uh, but do find a lot of support for the uh, argument. Again, again, just the fact that democracies are, are so often at the top of the global pecking order, uh, despite the fact that they're relatively rare. Um, and, and they're doing well for a lot of the reasons I identify in the theory. Uh, they tend to become uh, trading powers. They tend to become the centers of international finance. Uh, they tend to be good at building alliances and partnerships. Uh, they tend to have powerful militaries, uh, often powerful navies to protect their trading uh, routes. 
Um, and, and autocracies can do well for a while, but they often run out of steam for uh, some of the reasons I also identify in the theoretical uh, framework. They have financial trouble. Uh, the rest of the world counterbalances against them. Uh, they have domestic political instability and collapse, or, or they start dumb wars that lead to their um, destruction. Um, so just to mention a, a few um, uh, cases, um, you know, maybe you're familiar with um, ancient Athens, but you know, a lot of the um, uh, traits I mentioned, their uh, trading power, powerful navy, uh, do well for, for uh, quite a long time. Uh, first democracy uh, in, in the West, according to most um, political scientists. Uh, the Roman Republic, the first uh, republic, according to political scientists, republic uh, coming from the Latin res publica, public um, thing. What was interesting to me about doing this uh, study, we often think of the Roman Empire as the great Roman Empire and, and Caesar and, and, and uh, you know, Julius Caesar and, and uh, the, the emperors. Uh, but actually, the, the biggest explosion in wealth and power of Rome was under the Republic. Um, it was uh, you know, after the end of the kingship and, and uh, the Roman city-state, uh, and then under the Republic that they came to dominate the entire Mediterranean basin uh, and then only after that did they transition to dictatorship under Caesar, uh, and that began the long, slow decline. So Machiavelli, Polybius, Montesquieu, others who have looked at the rise of Rome said uh, it was the Republic that made Rome great, uh, and it was the transition to dictatorship um, that led to its decline. Um, Machiavelli uh, says Julius Caesar ruined it entirely. Uh, Venetian Republic, I, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go to Venice. If not, you should go. Uh, you know, uh, great tourist destination in Italy. And I often thought about it as this quaint um, tourist destination. But doing the study, I realized that it was probably the most powerful uh, country on, uh, in the world uh, at the height of its uh, power in, in the 1200s. Um, so it uh, was probably the wealthiest country on earth. Uh, was, was recognized by economists as really the first capital of, of capital. Uh, developed the uh, government um, uh, debt system of, of having you know, government-issued bonds that uh, citizens could buy as, as a way to raise revenue, um, had the world's most powerful navy, was, was the world's most dominant trading state. Um, so we sometimes refer to Venice as a city-state, but it was really a city empire and possessed territory in, in the Middle East as far away as, uh, as Russia. Um, and then the Dutch Republic is another uh, country I learned a lot about uh, doing this um, study. Um, you know, I've been to Amsterdam and thought, oh, what, Rembrandt and all these guys, how, why do they have all this great art? Really interesting. Um, but, you know, in the 1600s, the Dutch Republic was probably the world's leading uh, superpower. Um, and um, a, a lot of these same uh, examples of democratic leadership. The Dutch Republic invented the stock market, uh, invented the modern uh, corporation, uh, had the world's, was the world's leading trading power, had the world's most powerful navy. Uh, the military revolution, we often talk about revolutions in military affairs, the military revolution uh, really happened in the Dutch Republic in the 1600s with uh, Maurice uh, uh, of Nassau, uh, figuring out how to um, use firearms effectively on the battlefield really uh, for the first time. And I think it was the uh, you know, innovative and, and creative um, spirit in, in the Dutch Republic that, that made that innovation possible. Um, and, and in many ways, I, I was actually um, having uh, uh, the uh, uh, Dutch uh, military official was in town yesterday. I had lunch with him and I was complimenting him on, the, on the, what the Dutch accomplished in the 1600s and said in many ways it's really laid the groundwork for what the British Empire did and, and what the American Empire uh, or American, um, uh, you know, international leadership has done uh, since uh, many uh, of the same um, uh, models. Uh, so British Empire people are familiar with and uh, the United States uh, people are familiar with. And again, a lot of these uh, similar traits, center of the global financial system, uh, powerful navy, a lot of friends and allies. Um, so, so what does this uh, mean for today and the competition among the United States, uh, Russia, and China? And, and so in many ways, I think that Russia is the easy case for my argument. It's a prototypical example of a, of a weak um, dictatorship. Now, not, not to say that it's not dangerous. It, I think as we're seeing now in Ukraine, it's uh, weak and dangerous, but it is uh, weak. Uh, so economically, you know, Russia is not uh, a great power. Um, 
Russia has less than 2% of global GDP. Uh, Spain has a larger economy. Italy has a larger economy. Uh, do we think Spain and Italy are, are great powers? Uh, no, and we shouldn't. And, and so economically, Russia is not a great power um, either. It has this kleptocratic system with the elites um, you know, essentially stealing from the Russian people, from the Russian state. Uh, so you, you have a few you know, Russian elites like Putin and the people around him who are wealthy because they're uh, stealing, but you know, the Russian economy is um, uh, in real trouble. Uh, the only um, strength is that they do have natural resources, and so they're exporting oil and gas, but even that uh, model maybe um, uh, faces real challenges with the international sanctions. I have a colleague at the Atlantic Council who's a Russia expert who says basically Russia is a gas station with nuclear weapons, if you think about um, its economy. Um, diplomatically, Russia is also weak, um, you know, no real friends and, and allies, um, and I've talked about its history of invading its allies. Uh, a deepening strategic partnership with China that's worrying, uh, but I think it's unlikely that they form the kind of deep trusting alliance that the United States has with, say, the United Kingdom, Australia. Uh, or Japan. Um, so militarily, uh, what was the area where we thought that Russia was, was stronger? Uh, and again, it is uh, dangerous, but I think we're seeing now that um, it, it's much less powerful and much less effective than many people thought. Uh, and it has a lot of the common weaknesses uh, uh, that we've seen from dictators historically. You know, Putin made a dumb decision to go into the war. He thought it was going to be easier uh, than it was. Uh, we see that his soldiers are fighting with uh, low morale. A lot of stories of uh, them sabotaging their own equipment and um, uh, refusing uh, to fight. Um, we see the, uh, you know, one of the other advantages that political scientists write about is that in democracies, we uh, give soldiers uh, the ability to take initiative uh, on the battlefield, uh, not to wait for orders from, from the capital. Um, uh, in dictatorships, they often don't do that. And so we've seen Russia put um, uh, generals out in the field to, to command forces. And as a result, they're getting killed in large numbers. Uh, 16, I think, was the uh, number I've seen um, most recently. Um, so, um, uh, you know, Russia, again, dangerous, but, but not um, really a great power, not in a position to overtake U.S. international leadership anytime soon. Uh, so China's maybe the more difficult case. You know, has China cracked the code on how to have an effective autocracy? They promote this state-led uh, model of capitalism. Again, many economists predicting that they'll overtake the United States as the world's largest economy. Uh, they are gaining influence uh, around the world because of their large economy, Belt and Road Initiative, investments in ports, uh, bridges, roads. Um, China is now the uh, largest trading partner for a majority of countries on Earth, um, so it is gaining um, influence. Um, and then militarily, as I mentioned, uh, investing in, in its military, shifting the balance of power in East Asia, um, many um, U.S. officials wondering if the United States could successfully defend Taiwan, for example, uh, against a Chinese attack. Um, so China has real strengths. I don't want to downplay them. Uh, but it also has real weaknesses that are typical of autocracies. Um, so first, economically, um, you know, the, one of the challenges uh, dictatorships face is that um, dictators have a choice between control over the society uh, or letting the economy flourish, and dictators often choose control. And that's exactly what we're seeing President Xi doing. He's cracking down on the private education uh, sector, cracking down on Chinese technology companies, uh, cracking down on Hong Kong, really killing uh, one of the gooses that laid a golden egg for um, China, preventing uh, Chinese, uh, wealthy Chinese from investing overseas. So he's prioritizing political control over economic performance, and we're, uh, and with COVID, we're seeing this as well, uh, locking down um, China. Um, and uh, it, it's having a result. Um, so um, uh, Chinese official statistics now say that, you know, where China had 9, 10% growth for many years, even the Chinese Communist Party is saying, well, now it's more like 5%. Um, even Xi Jinping has said the era of high growth in China is over. Um, and, and many outside experts say 5%, they're lying. Uh, it's not that high. It's closer to, to zero. Uh, and so I, I, I think the true date, well, in, in 2010, when I first started uh, in this field, many people were saying China is going to overtake the United States as the world's leading economy in 2020. Uh, now in 22, they're saying, well, it'll overtake the United States sometime in the 2030s. 
I suspect in the 2030s, they'll be saying, well, in the 2040s. Uh, I, I think the true date is, is never. Uh, as long as China is led by the Communist Party, it's not going to have the world's uh, leading economy. Um, diplomatically, uh, China is gaining influence, but we're also seeing counterbalancing coalitions form. Uh, we see the Quad forming in Asia. We see the European Union declaring China as a systemic rival. Uh, we see uh, Denmark participating in RIMPAC this year. Uh, the rest of the free world is getting nervous about China and balancing against it. Uh, very similar, I think, to the way we saw the rest of the world balance against Hitler and, and Napoleon when they started getting too much uh, power. Uh, the world is, is comfortable with democracies when they become powerful, but they, they become nervous when dictators uh, get too much power. Uh, and then finally, militarily, um, you know, I, th I think China does pose a threat militarily, but I think it does have some of these characteristic weaknesses. Um, again, spends more on domestic security than on its military. Um, uh, nuclear deterrence uh, is, is an area I've focused a lot on. An uh, interesting example here, you know, China put its first um, nuclear submarine in the water in 1986. Um, and I think many in the West and the United States think, okay, if you want to do nuclear deterrence, it's simple. You put nuclear weapons on submarines. They do deterrence patrols. You have a survivable second strike capability. We do it. The British do it. The French do it. You know, since it's so easy for us, we take it for granted. This is actually hard to do and hard for dictators to do. Um, so China to this day still doesn't do regular deterrence patrols with its nuclear uh, submarines. And there are a variety of reasons for that. One is it keeps its nuclear weapons in central depots. Uh, because you're a dictator, you like control, you like your nuclear weapons in one place. Uh, they don't really trust these young officers to, to go to sea with nuclear weapons. You know, let, let's wait until a crisis or a war to do that. We don't need to do that in, in peacetime. And so there is, a, again, a political logic to it if you're a dictator who's obsessed with control, uh, but it undermines China's uh, nuclear deterrence and, and its military effectiveness. Um, so here's an example of uh, a Belt and Road investment that China's making, gaining influence. Um, this is a list of reforms that the Chinese Communist Party itself has said that they need to make to continue to grow. Uh, and as you can see, Xi is either stalling or backtracking on, on most of them. Uh, there's the uh, Chinese nuclear submarine that basically sits at port. Um, there's the greatest threat to uh, President Xi, not uh, the Department of Defense, but uh, internal instability. Okay, so what about the United States? And as I've given this uh, talk, people said, well, we have a lot of problems. You know, look at January 6th, look at the hearings, look at the polarization. Um, and I don't wanna uh, dismiss any of that. We, we certainly do have uh, problems. Uh, but we also have enormous strengths and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, the United States uh, still has the world's largest economy. Uh, we've been the world's most innovative economy since the time of Thomas Edison. Uh, I don't see that changing. Uh, the United States still sits at the center of the global financial system. Uh, don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, diplomatically, we have over 30 formal uh, allies. Uh, together with our allies, we make up 60% uh, of global GDP. You know, so if it's the United States against China one-on-one, -on -one, it's our 23% of global GDP to China's you know, 16%. That's getting a little close for comfort. Um, if it's the United States and our formal treaty allies against China, it's 60% to uh, 16%. We're in a much stronger uh, position. Uh, and then finally, uh, militarily, I think we're also uh, powerful. And, and just one uh, to illustrate this, you know, what are the scenarios we were worry most about? Well, we worry most about Putin attacking a vulnerable uh, NATO ally on the eastern flank. Uh, we worry about China attacking Taiwan. And so these are real problems. I don't want to downplay them. But essentially what we're talking about is a great power, nuclear-armed, continental-sized rival attacking a small uh, ally on, on its border. And we're worried that we might not be able to project power across the other side of the world and defend this small, vulnerable ally. So again, it's a real challenge, but I think it goes to show just how, how powerful the U.S. military is, that those are the problems we're worried about. We're not worried about Russia or China attacking North America or, or the United States. Uh, we're worried about them t attacking small countries on, on their own borders. Um, so a share of global GDP. People talk about the United States declining. It's, it's not true. The United States has had between 20 and 25% of global GDP since the 1960s. Uh, that's right where we are. Uh, what has changed is that China is, is rising and I, I defy you to find Russia on that uh, chart. 
um, uh, you know, you'll, you'll find Japan and, and other uh, countries uh, first. Um, in many uh, measures of economic power, the U.S. lead over China is growing. Um, lead in innovation is, is still uh, high, and I suspect this will also grow, grow as the world decouples from China. You know, China's innovation model was really parasitic on the West. We were essentially letting China steal intellectual property and other things because we were hoping as they became richer, they'd become more cooperative. Now that we see that's not the case, we're kicking down the ladder they, they climbed up. It's going to have real um, uh, negative implications for their growth. Um, military spending, you, you know. Okay, so let me um, wrap up. What are the implications for international relations theory? Uh, and I think the big one is uh, we often think about democracy as a good thing because it protects human rights and, and freedom. Uh, and that's true, but essentially what I argue in this book is that democracy is the best ever machine uh, invented for generating enormous um, power uh, and wealth. Uh, so it's kind of the hard power case uh, for democracy. Uh, and what does it mean for um, policy? Um, well, well, I think that the United States will be the, the leading state. I don't worry that China is going to overtake us anytime soon. Um, but the second point, that doesn't mean that we can uh, rest. I do think that Russia and China are weak and dangerous, um, as we're seeing in Ukraine. Um, I think Russia could attack a NATO ally. I think China could attack Taiwan. We could be in World War III with, with two uh, nuclear-armed major power rivals. So the threats are serious, but I think uh, you know, we need to understand that, that we're in the stronger uh, position. Um, if I'm right that our institutions are our greatest strength and we do need to get our house in order, I think the things like January, uh, the, the hearings into January 6th are helpful to make sure uh, we're staying strong. Um, contrary to this idea that the United States uh, can't do long-term strategy, I, I think we're way better at this than Russia or China. Uh, in fact, I think we've basically had the same grand strategy since 1945 uh, of building, uh, adapting, uh, and defending a rules-based international system. And I think it's uh, so powerful that we take it for granted. Uh, but, but this is much more impressive than Belt and Road Initiative or Made in China 2035 or these other, you know, um, um, I think not even grand strategies, minor strategies that China's come up with in the past uh, few years. Um, competitive um, strategy. Uh, often, I think, in the national security community, we think about where are we vulnerable? Uh, where are Russia and China strong? Uh, oh my gosh, China's building roads and bridges. We can't do that. How can we build roads and bridges? Oh, oh no, Russia's uh, messing around in our democracy. How can we um, uh, you know, defend our, our electoral system? And so that makes sense, but I think often the good strategy comes from the opposite. Uh, where are we strong? Uh, where are they weak? And, and how can we stick it to them there? And I think that this book reveals a, a lot of our strengths and their weaknesses that could become the basis of a good um, competitive strategy. Uh, and then finally, if I'm right, um, you know, we have some hard policy decisions to make in the United States, but I think the harder decisions uh, rest in, in Moscow and Beijing. Um, if uh, Putin really wants uh, to resurrect the Russian empire, uh, if she really wants China to be the world's leading state in 2049, um, then um, the, the answer's uh, simple. Uh, they need to give up power and put in place the kind of democratic institutions that have been prerequisites uh, for international leadership for the past 2,500 years. Um, so I'll end my talk there and very much look forward to Q&A and discussion. All right, sir. Big round of applause. Thank you, Dr. Koenig. Uh, we have about 15 minutes or so for uh, questions. Uh, uh, just a reminder, please wait for the, uh, for the microphone to come around so we can capture your question. Uh, we'll start right here. A very good talk. I enjoyed it. My, my question is somewhat of a critique, but you, you emphasize democracy and the democratic norms, and yet in France, you have a major party with Marie Le Pen that's infatuated with Putin, and you have the United States, maybe 20 or 30% of the electorate that is infatuated with Putin and, is, and, and does not support democratic norms. So there seems to be, that seems to be the weakness in your argument. As long as the democratic norms remain strong, this works. But when Trump threatened to leave NATO, that brings it all down. 
Could you sort of address the strength of our democratic norms when it comes to this? Yeah, it's a good uh, question. So I guess I'd make a, a few points. So, um, you know, uh, you're, you're right that uh, President Trump said some things that, um, you know, like we're going to leave NATO. Um, but uh, I think that's one of the strengths of our system that the leader thinks something, it doesn't automatically happen. You know, Putin thinks it's a good idea to invade Ukraine. It, it pretty much happens automatically. Uh, you know, in the uh, United States, the rather, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the president uh, can't unilaterally decide these issues. And, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, uh, spending toward NATO actually increased under President Trump. Uh, two new countries joined the alliance under President Trump. So even as he was criticizing NATO, I think in many ways the alliance was actually becoming uh, stronger uh, because of the other influences in our system from other parts of the executive branch, Congress, and, and elsewhere. Um, I, I think you're uh, right that um, uh, this depends on, on our democracy uh, being strong. And you know, what, one of the questions I address in the book is then why do these democracies ever decline? And at least a couple of the cases, the, the answer was essentially that they went away from the democratic uh, model that they'd have before. Uh, Venice is a good example of this, uh, where they had the, the serata, the closing, where um, uh, it used to be that uh, upwardly mobile people could uh, become wealthy, participate in, in the assembly. Uh, and then they had this golden book where only uh, wealthy uh, families could participate in politics. And, and I think that was part of the beginning of the end there. Uh, Roman Republic, uh, another good example, Machiavelli and others said it was the transition to dictatorship that led to the decline of, of Rome. Um, so I, I think that is one of the ways that U.S. leadership could come to an end. Um, now, I, I'm pretty um, confident in, in the strength of our democracies and uh, in our democracy, and I think we've seen our institutions uh, combat um, you know, efforts to expand presidential power and other things. Uh, but I think you're right that that is one way uh, leadership could end if, if our democracy ends. All right, we have one right up here. Thank you. I uh, really enjoyed the talk, uh, and it made me uh, think a little bit about historical examples. So this it kind of extends the previous question, uh, talking about democracies and uh, perhaps how they end. I'm thinking about post-democratic states that have been particular dangers. So. Uh, after the uh, you know, Napoleonic France, for example, uh, or Japan uh, in the 1930s, uh, the post-Kerensky Soviet Union, uh, you know, the Germany after Weimar, uh, Italy with uh, Mussolini in charge. These are all post-democratic states. So are post-democratic states perhaps the most dangerous autocracies? Hmm. Uh, so, so just to make sure I understand, so a country that was a democracy uh, that then transitions to dictatorship, do they become the most um, dangerous? Uh, that, that's interesting. It's, it's not one that I've, a uh, uh, question that I've thought of, uh, to be honest, you know, because my, my question was more what determines uh, whether a country maintains leadership or in, prevails in these competitions, uh, not about what leads them to become um, dangerous. Um, I think I'd have to think about that more. Now, I guess the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, how do you think about um, democracy? And so political scientists, you know, we often talk about a black and white democracy autocracy, uh, but um, political scientists have developed various measures. Uh, and, and often uh, these are, it's more shades of gray. So the polity score, for example, measures uh, from positive 10, most democratic, uh, to negative 10, most autocratic, but there are you know, a lot of shades in between, four, zero, negative one. And, and so I'm guessing if we look at um, a lot of uh, the, the examples you mentioned, they probably were never really consolidated democracies, according to uh, political scientists. They were probably somewhere uh, in between. Um, but um, yeah, you've stumped me, to be honest. I'll, I'll have to think about that more. We have one over here. Um, do you think with the advent of technology, social media, um, auto democracies won't be able to thrive because part of it is they keep their own people in the dark and they keep the outside world in the dark. The world's a little more open now. Will, these, will we see these possibly big ones disappear in the future, like Russia and China? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and it's something that experts have been um, debating. So, um, you know, early on, there were uh, many people arguing like you that this is going to help uh, democratic movements and, and protest movements. It's going to be hard for dictators to maintain power. And, and they pointed to, you know, protesters and, and, and uh, using social media and 
you know, the protest against Mubarak in, in Egypt and, and uh, in Maidan Square in, in Ukraine. Um, and then you've had uh, kind of a response to that with other experts saying, no, maybe this actually gives dictators the advantage. You know, look at what China's doing, uh, collecting citizen uh, data on all of its citizens with facial recognition technology, uh, giving them social credit scores. Uh, you know, maybe this gives um, dictators the advantage. Um, I, I address this briefly in the book, and essentially what I argue is that um, I think those arguing that this gives dictators the advantage are, are missing the point a little bit, because they essentially argue that um, democracies have had advantages in the past because we had the most data, uh, but now dictators have more data. You know, look at uh, all the data that the CCP can collect on its people, so, so now they're going to have the advantage. But what I argue, I think it's not just having the data, it's what you do with it. You know, can you uh, make sense of it? Do you have debates about what it means? Uh, can you form, uh, you know, reasonable policies uh, based on that? And so I think when it comes to that weighing and, and sifting uh, and winnowing of evidence, uh, making sound policy decisions that democracies um, still have, have the advantage. So I, I think that uh, on balance, I agree with you that I think uh, new technology is going to favor uh, democracies um, not not uh, dictatorships. Matthew, I think here at the War College and elsewhere, when we think about strategic frameworks or analytical frameworks, and we talk about elements of national power, we think of things beyond um, diplomacy, the military, and the economy. Did you consider? You know, and that list is growing, I think. You know, we commonly talk about information, but we also now talk about other um, characteristics of, of national strength. It, have you thought about that expanded framework and, and what led you to kind of narrow to these three elements in your analysis? Yeah, it's a, it's a good uh, question. You know, there, there's the, you know, dime um, analysis that many people have used, the diplomacy, intel, uh, information, uh, military, and economy. Um, I, I think part of the reason I uh, drew on these three is, is that they seemed um, relevant. Um, you know, over the 2,500-year uh, period I was uh, covering, um, also there are areas where there was a lot of existing political science research that I could draw on. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of great political science research on intelligence because uh, a lot of the political scientists like data. A lot of the best data, you know, remains um, uh, classified. But um, uh, so, so just to um, think about in intelligence in particular, I, I think that one is a little bit more um, complicated uh, because I think one of the, um, so, so I've talked a lot about democratic strengths and autocratic weaknesses, uh, but we also have weaknesses, of course, and they have strengths. And I do think that one of our weaknesses is our openness to foreign uh, penetration. And so we see that with the Russian interference in our election. Uh, we see that with China interfering in our democracy in, in various ways with Confucius Institutes. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think we can also see it going all the way back to the Greeks and the Persians with the, uh, the Persians uh, finding out from a shepherd about how to get around the mountain pass at, at Thermopylae. Uh, so I, I think this is an enduring uh, weakness that we need to be aware of. It's easier for the adversary to get information about us uh, and to penetrate our system than it is for us to uh, get information in their system. Um, but the other thing I would say is that ultimately, um, while we may be um, more vulnerable to foreign interference, uh, I think they're actually more brittle uh, to foreign interference. You know, we can es essentially withstand um, outside powers interacting in our system because there's such a cacophony of other voices and, uh, you know, it's, it's unlikely that outside interference is going to have the decisive um, effect. You know, on the other hand, look at, uh, you know, if you want to know where our adversaries are, are weak, uh, we can just ask them. You know, what do Russia and China complain most about? They complain that we're orchestrating color revolutions in their uh, societies to bring down their regimes. Uh, of course, we're, we're not doing that, um, but maybe we should. You know, if that's really where they feel vulnerable, you know, maybe we should uh, conduct cyber attacks to bring down the uh, firewall in China. Uh, maybe we should send text messages to every Russian citizen pointing out uh, Putin's corruption. Uh, it, so it's harder for us to get into their system, but I think uh, if, if we could, that they are much more vulnerable. And, and I, I found that in my study, that um, often these autocratic governments, um, uh, the competition ends when the autocratic government uh, collapses. So the Soviet Union is a good example, but there are other ones as well, including the Byzantine Empire against the Venetians. Uh, and so I think that is one way that this uh, competition uh, could come to an end, that uh, Putinism or uh, the CCP 
uh, that, that their domestic political systems crumble altogether. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.